Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy at the East Tennessee State University. And thank you to the college for supporting my, my little project, uh, my little podcast that could. It is uh, September 24th, 2019, and that date is important because exactly 10 years ago today, Donna Rubison 90 was published. And that's what we're talking about today in our uh, kind of landmarks of, on- of Oncopharm series, where we talk about landmark uh, publications of clinical trials. This is a pretty recent one, just 10 years ago, but certainly was uh, was kind of an instant classic, so to speak, when this was published. So this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, again, September 24, 2009, by Hugo F. Fernandez, lead author. And the very last author is Martin Tallman, who's actually one of the uh, guideline writers for the AML uh, document from the National Comprehensive Cancer Network here in the States on treatment of, of AML. So just to, you know, give you the, the pretext here, the, um, for 30 years before this study, uh, anthracycline cytarabine, the 7 plus 3 regimen, that's what we did, 7 plus 3. Uh, now you could debate, should you do 45 milligrams per meter squared of donorubicin or 60 milligrams per meter squared, or should you do idorubicin? And you know you could you can change those out. You can change around 100 milligrams per meter squared per day is continuous infusion of cytarabine versus 200 milligrams per meter squared per day for seven days. You can change those around. No matter what we did, uh, did not change overall survival. Uh, Throwing other drugs didn't change overall survival. So 30 years there was really no change to the treatment of AML. We figured out at least no change to induction. We figured out. Gemtuzumab, Ozo- uh, ozogamycin didn't really do anything. We figured out um, that there were had a risk stratified people based on cytogenetics and molecular abnormalities with FLT3 and things like that, and that was starting to become more and more important in post-remission therapy uh, at this time. But still, we had not changed, um, you know, the you know the the natural history of disease with our induction chemo for like 30 years until. Somebody decided, and this was the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group, uh, decided to double the dose of donorubicin and give 90 milligrams per meter squared in a standard 7 plus 3 regimen compared to 45 milligrams per meter squared in a 7 plus 3 regimen. Now, in this particular study, these were all patients under the age of 60. Uh, and this is uh, ECOG 1900 is, I think, the official name of this study. But they enrolled... Um, about 600 patients, not all of whom went on to to receive therapy. Now, patients began enrolling in December of 2002 all the way up to November of 2008. Uh, A total, again, over 600 patients um, were were accrued. Now, here was the treatment. 45 or 90 milligrams per meter squared of donors in days 1 to 3, plus uh, a 24-hour infusion of 100 milligrams per meter squared of cytarabine for 7 days. And this is a cell cycle-specific agent cytarabine, so we're going to give it non-stop for basically seven straight days so that all those AML cells enter in the S phase and can be killed by cytarabine. Then they did a biopsy day, you know, 12 or 14. If they were not, uh, the marrow was not hypoplastic at that point. They still saw a lot of blasts. They got 7 plus 3 again, but regardless of which arm they were on, this 45 or 90 milligrams of donorubicin arm, that reinduction was 45 milligrams per meter squared of donorubicin. Now, after induction or reinduction, if they saw and confirmed uh, the marrow was hypoplastic, uh, they did give them growth factors. They got sargramistim, which is GMCSF, kind of an odd choice until recovery of neutrophils. Uh, and then they went on to their post-remission therapy, which uh, was 
a little bit odd for that uh, for today's time. So if they had unfavorable cytogenetics uh, or a white count of more than 100,000 in diagnosis, and they had a sibling, they got uh, an allo uh, sibling transplant. Everyone else, uh, uh, if they had intermediate cytogenetics, got um, and a sibling, sibling match transplant. Everyone else got an auto transplant. We don't do a lot of auto transplants these days for AML. Um, that's my understanding of it. That was my understanding of it when this came out. Um, patients who did go on to receive an auto transplant did get two cycles of high dose cytarabine or HIDAC, but not just, there was no one who just got post remission HIDAC per protocol in this study. Now, another little interesting thing here, a sign of the times. Um, before transplant, half the patients got a single dose of gemtuzumab. That arm was subsequently closed because there's no difference in event-free survival or overall survival. So they enrolled a little over 600 patients. Of those, just under 600 actually had treatment. And what they found was a higher rate of complete remission in the higher dose donorizing group, 70.6% versus 57.3%. That's notable. But we saw higher rates of complete remission, for example, in prior studies with idarubicin versus donorubicin and prior studies of 60 milligrams per meter squared of donorubicin compared to 45 uh, milligrams per meter squared of donorubicin. Oh, I should also mention, you know, the, the treatment uh, the treatment arms are pretty well balanced. You had a median age of 47 and 48 in both arms. So again, it's a young AML population, not the typical AML population. Um, 12% had favorable cytogenetics in the standard group, 16% uh, in the high-dose group. So the high-dose group had more patients with favorable cytogenetics, but also had about 1% you know, more patients with unfavorable cytogenetics compared to the standard risk group. But no, no big difference in the treatment cytogenetics. Um, I should also mention this was before we had FLT3 inhibitors, before we had IDH1 or IDH2 even to, to measure in these patients. So we didn't have any targeted therapy yet to offer these patients who would have had actionable um, molecular abnormalities. So like I said, about 70% versus 57%, uh, so about a 13% absolute improvement in complete remission rate in the high-dose donorubicin group as well as an overall survival benefit. So the median overall survival was 23.7 months with high-dose donorubicin compared to 15.7 months uh, with conventional donorubicin. And that uh, overall survival benefit um, held true mostly in, in patients under the age of 50. Above the age of 50, it's not quite as clear that there was a, an overall survival benefit. Again, not necessarily powered to look at that subgroup. Uh, and then those who had unfavorable cytogenetics, if you look at those Kampemeyer curves, that it kind of goes straight downhill uh, and doesn't plateau until about 20% of patients uh, maybe have long-term disease-free survival. But it's about the same in both groups. Those curves are superimposable for unfavorable cytogenetics. From a toxicity standpoint, there was 14% versus 8% uh, neutropenic grade 4 neutropenic fever, so more so in the high-dose donorubicin group. Uh, and cardiac events were, this, you know, were about the same in both groups, 10% uh, grade 4 cardiac events in high-dose donorubicin group, 5% in the high-dose, or in the standard-dose donorubicin group. So more cardiac events, but long-term we did not see any big differences um, with the high-dose donorubicin group. And to put this in perspective, you're getting 90 milligrams per meter squared for three doses. That's 270 
you know, that's more than you would get for, for four cycles of AC for breast cancer. We're getting 60 milligrams per meter squared times four doses, total cumulative dose of 240. Uh, that's the reason because you're getting 270 per meter squared of an anthracycline of donorubicin in your induction, that the reinduction was at that lower dose of 45, so you wouldn't get above your max dose uh, anthracycline lifetime exposure. Um, so this was, you know, obviously, uh, you know, a landmark study at this in the exact same issue in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, Lowenberg and colleagues, and this is a Dutch-Belgian uh, Hemont group, a German group, and a Swiss group. So a Northern European study looks at the same question, basically 90 versus 45 of Don and Rubicin, but in patients over the age of 60. And what they found were patients, uh, I think, between six. There was no overall survival benefit, but patients between the ages or younger than 65 did also see higher rates of complete remission rate. And, and if you look at it just right, you can see maybe an overall survival benefit for some. You put that in the context of the Fernandez study here in the States that, that really didn't show or showed that most of the benefit for high-dose donorubicin was in folks under the age of 50, which is where we still kind of see it used are those under the age of 60. Um, interestingly, the NCCN guidelines say that you should give a dose of 60 to 90 milligrams per meter squared with 7 plus 3. Um, they don't differentiate 90 as being a, a higher level of recommendation versus 60 for those with um, uh, under the age of 60, so 90 or 60. I, it, depending on how you read the guidelines, I guess you could do 75 because they say 60-90 milligrams per meter squared. Um, another thing that uh, that I think bears mentioning is there was a British study published in Blood in 2015. Uh, this is the NRCI AML 17 study, and they had um, like 1,200 patients, and they randomized them to Donorubicin 60 versus Donorubicin 90. Did not show any differences in complete remission rate or overall survival. However, the regimen is a little bit different, and the anthracycline is given on days 1, 3, and 5 versus days 1 to 3. And the cytarabine is given as a is given for uh, 10 days versus 7 days, so slightly different. Another thing different about this study is both the 90 milligram per meter squared of Donorusin group and the 60 milligram per meter squared of Donorusin group in this um, UK publication from Blood in 2015. They all got Donorusin 50 as a consolidation therapy. So that maybe changes you know, how much total anthracycline they got in both groups and, and maybe negates the benefit or, of Donorusin 90, or maybe it suggests that you should have more Donorusin. So, uh, to this day, you know, it's kind of 60 to 90, but the 90 milligram per meter squared came from this. And the thing that I find fascinating as, as an oncology pharmacist, it took 30 years to try, you know, 60 wasn't better than 45. Why not try a higher dose? And some higher doses like 75 and 80, I think, had been studied without uh, showing much benefit. But when you look at this study, I think some of the things that are really interesting when you go back to it, it may be different from your regional practice, uh, is the use of growth factor after establishing, uh, you know, hypoplastic marrow um, to uh, aid count recovery. That's not something that's necessarily done everywhere. Uh, I think the fact that for post-remission therapy, so many people got auto-transplant was interesting. And if you look at that Kaplan-Meier curve, there were a lot of patients uh, who are censored. That means they're not accounted for um, in at the you know, kind of the end of the monitoring, and so almost half the patients, I think it was like 40% of patients, actually left treatment after remission therapy. Now, some of that was due to, you know, uh, they had progressive disease, relapsed refractory disease, but some was because they didn't want to go on to receive a transplant. A significant portion went on to receive 
a, a matched unrelated donor allo transplant based on the study protocol. That was the only way to get an allo was to get a sibling related donor. You could not get a matched unrelated donor as a transplant has gotten better and better. More and more patients would have been comfortable. More and more physicians would have been comfortable uh, offering their, pa their patients a matched unrelated donor allo transplant. And some may have also seen kind of the writing on the wall that maybe auto did not have the benefit uh, that uh, that we want at that time. So that can also muddy the waters if you have different um, proportions of patients leaving uh, the regular arm or the Dono 90 arm for for different post-remission therapies, which is always uh, challenging and evaluating uh, acute leukemia studies, which is not uh, my area of expertise. Uh, just pointing out this Fernandez study from 10 years ago today and uh, the direction it changed. I mean, overnight people were recommending Donorubicin 90 uh, for induction therapy based off of, off of this study uh, by Fernandez and colleagues. So that's this week's episode of Oncofarm. Thank you for listening, and uh, feel free to follow me on Twitter at Farden Deaton. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Insta at OncofarmPod. And until, uh, oh, yeah, give us a rating on iTunes. Five stars. Tell us what you like, what you'd like to hear more of. Uh, you can listen there, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Music. And uh, feel free to, uh, to contact me if you have other episodes. I do have a suggestion in the can from somebody on Instagram. I'm uh, going to get to that uh, coming up. It has to do with neoadjuvant treatment of breast cancer. We'll do that one at some point, I promise. If you have an interest in something, let me know. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses, as we saw today, doses matter. Why it took that long, nobody knows.